Welcome back, everybody. On this podcast, I've been talking about sonship, and I'm going to slightly deviate from that. In terms of today, I'm not going to talk so much about doctrine, mostly going to review a book, but I think that it is very helpful. Many groups, many leaders, many religions have talked about, well, men becoming gods. And they've gotten it wrong every single time. And so mentioning them in terms of guardrails is a good idea. In the move, as I recall, we didn't have any political opinion. Sam Fife told us to grunt if somebody asked us about political opinion. However, as a minister in a mainline denomination, we definitely got into political opinions. And as a sociologist, even if I didn't actually hold a political opinion, I typically knew about the conversation and I knew some pertinent facts that would help. And of course, in any conversation, definitions are very important. Today, the conversation is mostly around seven mountains. And if sonship is translated into being leadership, particularly in the broader area, the tops of the mountains, then we need to talk about the whole conversation about Christian nationalism. And I'm not going to settle that. And in fact, it can't be settled if there are are shifting definitions or competing definitions, and boy, howdy, aren't there. (laughs) But today I'm going to shed some light that we may come back on that. We will talk later about leadership and about governance. Today I'm going to begin considering some of the points that Erwin W. Lutzer, L-U-T-Z-E-R, Lutzer, has made in his book, Hitler's Cross. Hitler's Cross, and the subtitle is How the Cross Was Used to Promote the Nazi Agenda. Spoiler alert, we're not for that. (laughs) Okay. And nor is anyone, everybody in the United States at this time hates Hitler. And so he is often used as the boogeyman to talk about whoever we don't like. But I think what's very important is to know what went wrong so that we don't follow that path. And then next time, I think we're going to talk about church leadership and politics and and take some lessons from the church, the church's experience vis-a-vis the Third Reich and also the Confessing Church, and you've heard about Bonhoeffer and so forth. Okay, so first off, I want to talk about the foundations of Hitler's government and basically the position culturally that the church was in. Okay, so we're talking about the big picture, the history, and so forth. You know, I met some Germans when I was young. I met some German Canadians who actually spoke for Hitler. Now, this is something pretty rare today. 
but when I was very young. So I met one woman, I would think probably in the worker class, who said, well, Hitler was great. She didn't believe that there were a bunch of Jews killed and that Hitler made the trains run on time, by which she meant he gave order. Then there was another man. Uh, he was a theosophist and very nice man and explained to me how difficult it was because the economy crashed after the Treaty of Versailles. He said he had worked 10 years and he saved his money, you know, very diligently. And because of the rampant inflation, all he could buy with his 10 year savings is one pair of pants. And the first time he washed them, they fell apart. And he discovered at that point that they were paper. Oh gosh, how, how awful. Of course he was, you know, retirement age and so forth when I knew him. And so this gives you some, some insight. Please note here, these were not some far right politicos. On the contrary, they were just normal people who have grown old. They're in a more liberal society in Canada. They were just young and normal people trying to have a life when they were young. Okay, they weren't somehow boogeyman nationalists and they weren't racist. They were just normal people. And even after a lifetime of reflection, they weren't necessarily for Hitler. They just thought they needed a solution. So I want you to understand that Hitler was voted into office. And Lutzer cites that he you know, revived the collapsed economy. He erased the shame of the defeat of World War I, and he gave Germans vacations and training for those who were unskilled and brought them to full employment. He brought crime under control. He built freeways, and he made Germans believe in themselves. Okay. Now, Reich, the word Reich means kingdom. The first Reich was 800 to 1806, Charlemagne, or other words, Charles the Great was crowned by Pope Leo III on Christmas Day in the year 800. So this is the history, the, the glorious history that much of Europe and certainly Germany could look back upon. And Charles, or Charlemagne, cemented unity of the church and the state that had begun with Constantine. And he brought in reforms, and he was considered a, an enlightened ruler. The Second Reich would be 1871 to 1918. So picture Germany as a collection of 300 independent states. And Otto von Bismarck was a shrewd premier of Prussia and politically savvy enough to unify the German-speaking peoples. So this is further back in history, or we didn't study it, so we don't think of this. Uh, I did learn that Italy was once a lot of city-states and was only more recently a unified nation-state. So we did talk about nation-states in world history. So, so Otto von Bismarck used war too, but his clear agenda was that he wanted to 
revive the old Holy Roman Empire, all under German rule. So if the First Reich, at Lutzer says, prepared the way for Hitler by unifying church and state, the Second Reich contributed to the paralysis of the church by teaching that there must be a split between the private and public morality. The state, it was argued, should not be judged according to conventional law because its responsibility went beyond ordinary values. Skipping head again. So Bismarck agreed with his Prussian predecessor, Frederick the Great, who once boasted that, quote, salvation is God's affair. Everything else belongs to me. This double standard became known as the doctrine of the two spheres, a subject to which we'll return, okay, in Nazi Germany. So the doctrine of the two spheres. Notice that, mark that, put that in the back of your mind, because you will find that both theologian and political philosophers will come up with that again. Okay, so then what was happening? Let's compare this to the United States. So they had a union of church and state from Constantine and then Charlemagne, and then they had the doctrine of the two spheres. That's very much in contrast with the United States which in the founding of the colonies were highly religious, but because each colony had a majority and an, even an established religion in a different denomination, they wanted to have a government, and for that was one reason. But another reason is because nearly all of them had left England because of religious persecution. Now, some of them left England because they wanted to make money. But many of the founding colonies were, and certainly Plymouth in particular, were escaping an established religion. So the Puritans and the Pilgrims and the Baptists, etc., wanted a different religion from the Church of England, which very Latitudinarian, but at, at any rate, it was the state church. And when the colonies were found, it was customary to find people if they didn't go to church regularly and to kill people if they were of a disfavored religious group. Even Queen Elizabeth had Roman Catholic priests hunted down, okay? And certainly, you know, certainly the reverse was true, and we all know that across Europe. Okay, so people in the United States, in the colonies, when they founded the United States, it was primary value to have the right of conscience so that the government could not interfere with religion. The government could not interfere with religion. You can't say that enough. The government <laughs> cannot interfere with religion. Right? So this was the point that the founders were making. And in fact, they also quoted over and over, there are many quotations from ver various founders, that this nation could never be ruled. A, re a democratic republic could never work unless people were virtuous by virtue of their religion. So they did not intend to excise religion from the public marketplace of ideas. On the contrary, even the, the, the two that were the least orthodox, Benjamin Franklin and 
Thomas Jefferson. I'm going to have to tell that story. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson, when he was president, never missed service. And the service was held in the rotunda of the Capitol. He would saddle up his horse, or maybe somebody else saddled it up. And anyway, he rode a horse and got to service. He didn't have a family with him at the time. And he was asked, he said, well, I'm a president. I have to set a good example. So of course, I'm not going to miss service. And there were more than, there weren't a lot of people there, but there was more than one service. Sometimes Capitol Building held two services and the Navy band provided the music. Benjamin Franklin in the Constitutional Convention, when they reached an impasse, said, let's pray. And this was not a five-minute break. <laughs> they hired a preacher to preach to them. They went across the street to the church, and they spent more than an hour in prayer. And those of them who believed in kneeling knelt down, and they prayed. And you can see in his very words, oh my gosh, when we wrote the Declaration of, of Independence, and of course they did other committee work. We sought God's hand, providential hand in our dealings every day. And how is it that we've forgotten now? Oh my goodness. And, and then of course, George Washington, who is extremely religious and mentioned God all the time. Okay, prayed. And, and there are miracle stories about how he survived and how we won the American Revolution, because that's impossible. So a few little colonies winning against the ruler of the seas, that's nonsense. Okay, so we had separation of church and state while being very religious. And uh, again, Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptists. Okay, you know this. And if you don't, you need to go find out. Okay, but let me read Lutzer. However, here in America, the phrase separation of church and state today is given a sinister twist by civil libertarians. To them, it means that religious people should not be allowed to practice their religion in the realm that belongs to the state. Religion, we are told, should be practiced privately. The state must be, quote, cleansed, unquote, of every vestige of religious influence by insisting that the state be free for all religions, unquote. Organizations such as the ACLU, in effect, make it free for none. Well, uh, ACLU member would say, we need freedom from religion. And while it is certainly the consensus that we should grant that to our citizens, that was not the view of the founders. Okay, I want to show you at the beginning how United States and Germany were different. And the question, of course, is going to come up, are we beginning in the United States to follow a similar track to what Germany did in the mid-1900s. Okay, so I talked about the First Reich and the Second Reich. It's time to talk about the Third Reich. First off, Lutzer, so the, he dates the Third Reich as 1933 to 1945. First, he cites the philosophical roots. George Hegel, or maybe it's Georg Hegel, held the chair of philosophy at Berlin University. And you are familiar with his dialectical process, okay, which inspired Marx. And Hegel preached the glorification of the state, saying it was God walking on the earth. 
individual rights, he believed, simply got in the way of the state as the supreme authority. So you see, this is very much in contradistinction between the American founders who said that government has a legitimate right to exist only in order to secure individual rights and should have only the powers that are enumerated. Well, that's not what we're doing, but that is what they said very clearly. Going on with Lutzer, page 32. War, Hegel taught, was the great purifier that was necessary for the ethical health of the people. Skipping down, as might be expected, Hegel denied the uniqueness of Christianity and he argued that the Old Testament had to be rejected because of its Jewish roots. A pure Christian faith could be had only by a pure race, namely the Germans. Thus, a new Christianity would have to evolve that was suited to a higher German spirit. Now, Lutzer doesn't go into it, but James Lindsay has in current electronic media about how Hegel followed Goethe, who was a wizard, and there's a whole um, occult strain or schools of thought in Germany. And anyway, James Lindsay has unpacked that thread from Goethe and Hegel to Marx and to current day woke ideology and Mao ideology as well. Okay, Lutzer goes on to Friedrich Nietzsche, who was the son of a Lutheran pastor who wrote a bitter assault on Christianity, accusing it of weakness and of being the cause of Germany's ill. In his book, Antichrist, he wrote, quote, I call Christianity the one great curse, the one enormous and innermost perversion, the one moral blemish of mankind. I regard Christianity as the most seductive lie that has yet existed, close quote. Christianity said with its emphasis on the virtues of mercy and forgiveness made Germany weak. Nietzsche, you will remember, proclaimed that God was dead. Skipping down, Nietzsche knew that with God's death there was no answer for man's guilt, no one to wipe the blood from our hands. And since God was dead, a successor would have to be found, and Nietzsche knew that in an atheistic state the strong would rule the weak. Nietzsche died in 1900, did not live to see the rise of the Third Reich or the spread of atheistic communism. But his prediction that the 20th century would be one of bloodshed was unfortunately all too true. With God out of the way, humans would be unrestrained and there would be no fear of judgment, no belief in the virtues of morality. When human realized that history was based on raw power, there would be universal madness. Of course, you know that Nietzsche himself was, was crazy. Ideas do have consequences. Lutzer says, in the notion that God was dead, freed humans to do as they pleased. Bleh. Okay. And then theological roots. Those were philosophical. So Germany was, Lutzer, and still is, a hotbed of liberal scholarship that stripped Christianity of its uniqueness. Now we're talking about 
theological liberalism. An influential theologian named Ludwig Feuerbach would have agreed that the New Agers of today, that the doctrine of God should be more properly interpreted as the doctrine of man. So he said that, Feuerbach said that God was simply a reification of man's um, desires or, you know, good wishes. <laughs> okay. And so the German scholars demythologized the New Testament. And and any basic seminary is going to read those things. You know, Bultmann, who said, you know, no modern man who can work a wireless could believe in the resurrection. Do you know what a wireless is? <laughs> okay. Along with the humanization of God came the deification of man. In Weimar, Goethe had eloquently argued that man must replace God as the center of art, philosophy, and history. As a child of the Enlightenment, he believed that religion had to be rethought and made to glorify man rather than God. All right. Substituting human ideas for the revelation of God, the Third Reich reinterpreted the cross of Christ to advance a pagan agenda. Now that's the point of Letzer's book. Okay, and then Political Roots um, talks about Versailles and so forth. Economic Roots. And so the Republic, for all its good intentions, was now blamed for accepting the unfair terms of the treaty and for subsequent economic crisis. So you understand this. Germans had a republic for only a short time after the Kaiser was deposed. And the Republic made the agreement of, of the Versailles Treaty, and the German mark, which had at one time been valued at four to a dollar, fell to seventy-five to a dollar, then four hundred to a dollar, and by nineteen twenty-three it had fallen to seven thousand marks per dollar. When Germany defaulted on its war payment, the French president commanded his troops to occupy the Ruhr area. Thus, the industrial heart of Germany was cut off from the rest of the country. That act triggered the final strangulation of Germany's choking economy. And then eventually there was four billion dark marks to a dollar, and the mark was canceled. And you've heard stories about the desperate poverty. In 1923, Hitler's dramatic attempt to overthrow the Bavarian government failed. The putsch that will be briefly described in the next chapter. He was convicted of treason, and after his incarceration in Landsberg prison, he decided to gain power through the political process. He would see democracy as a path to power and then crush that democracy once he gained control. And so the book explains how he did that and the dramatic takeover of the beer hall, etc. Unemployment was high. He, he swore to uphold the Weimar Constitution, but turned around and destroyed it. He promised to follow the Weimar Constitution, but in fact he destroyed it. Hitler blamed the arson, the Reichstag fire, on a communist conspiracy and induced Hindenburg to sign a decree, quote, for the protection of the people and the state, unquote, that suspended individual liberties. The agreement was to protect the state, 
but suspended individual liberties. Please remember, if, if you don't know, let me tell you, the founders of the United States said a government was legitimate only if it secured the rights of individuals. The Nazis could then search homes without a warrant, confiscate property, and outlaw the meetings of group that might oppose them. You see, we in the States, we have these rights, you know, against the, the first ten amendments. Like, four is the right against unwarranted searches and seizures. But we don't study those <laughs> because after more than 200 years, we, we just feel like, oh, we're fine. We need to study these <laughs> and get a comparison. Also notice that the Nazis were blaming the communists for the right stag fire. The communists always blame the Nazis. Look, folks, they're both socialists. Somehow, we always see the communists as the far left and the Nazis as the far right. But where do we get that idea that all of reality can be 2D? No, Nazis are socialists. Now, they're thought about as being racist, for sure they were, and nationalists, whoa, 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 whoa. What's the definition? Was Hitler interested in his own people or was he interested in an empire? Clearly an empire. He took over the Poles and, he, and France and he fought against the British, took over Slovenia and Czech, blah, blah. He's not a nationalist, he's an imperialist. Oh my goodness. So we get triggered and we use these words. We have no idea what we're talking about and we're throwing them around and we're triggered and that might be the point. So I'm trying to give you an education. All right. So and then we talk about the brown shirts and, but I want to, all right. Was Hitler religious? Well, he was very much involved in the occult. He did make references to providence or fate. So the our founders, the United States founders, when they said providence, they meant the God, the Judeo-Christian God. It's not clear that Hitler ever meant that. But he did certainly have a spirituality. Page 46, and when I look back, this is Hitler saying, on the five years which lie behind us, then I feel justified in saying this has not been the work of man alone, unquote. We should not be surprised that in Mein Kampf, Oh, that's his opus book, Mein Kampf, My Struggle. He wrote that he was doing the will of the Lord. Oh, and since I just translated German for you, Reich is kingdom. So when Germans traditionally prayed the Lord's Prayer, they said, Lord, may your Reich come. Here's a story. Most interesting is Hitler's account of why he entered politics in the first place. He was a messenger during World War I and was blinded by an attack of mustard gas. While he was recuperating in the hospital on Sunday, November the 10th, 1918, a pastor came to bring unbelievable news to the wounded soldiers in the military hospital. Germany had lost the war 
and a new government, a republic, had been proclaimed in Berlin. Hitler felt deep betrayal and experienced a conversion experience, a call to politics that he labored, he later described as, quote, the pressure of destiny, unquote. There in the hospital, with his eyes burning in darkness, he attained a spiritual vision that he later described as, quote, the magical relationship between the man and the whole universe, unquote, fate had, quote, summoned him, unquote, to play a role in restoring the fatherland. So Lutzer asks, well, where was God, the God of Judeo-Christian providence? And he sees it as God was purifying the church through the hard times. This we will have to talk about later. Now, Putsch, P-U-T-S-C-H, is translated as revolution. The communist revolution in Russia occurred in 1918, the same year Germany surrendered, ending World War I. The Communist Party in Germany was growing in strength, positioning itself for a takeover. The soldiers who had returned from the war were angry men who could not find jobs, and Hitler later described them as men who favored revolution for its own sake and, quote, desired to see revolution established as a permanent condition. So now that's very important, and you'll hear James Lindsay talk about that as a fundamental principle of communism, especially Maoism, that revolution is a permanent condition. And so when we say critical thinking, or critical race theory. We're talking about a sustained destructive criticism without necessarily much building. I mean, it's a tearing down, it's critical, it's a revolution. And on the other side is utopia, of course. Okay, and the putsch, you know, allowed him to take over the Munich, beer hall where there were 3,000 men and do some political maneuvering between groups, kind of manipulated them into capitulation and agreeing with the Nazis. And uh, we've already talked about he was convicted of treason. Uh, He was in the Landsberg prison. And uh, he and Rudolf Hess wrote the Nazi Bible, Mein Kampf. Okay. And we know there were assassination attempts and etc. Now Lutzer then wants to deal with the questions of providence, which would you would have to if that's part of your theology, reform theology. So he says that God is is resp- holds people responsible, Satan and angels as well, is responsible for the evil, even though he lets them do it. And, of course, not all Protestants today are reformed and don't necessarily think that God is in charge because of the dominion mandate. So there is some difference in Christian theology. But Lutzer says, we live not by fate, but by faith. Fate leads to doom. Faith leads to destiny that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Quoting First Peter 
one and seven. And so let's ask about our response to divine providence. Yes, we cannot fathom the mystery, but we are responsible for obedience to the revelation and that God does know how to turn evil to good. Okay, so this is about as long as an episode is. We haven't gotten too far except to establish the basic outline of what was going on with Hitler and Germany. And next time I want to talk more about his attack on the church and the church's responses. And yes, we'll talk about Bonhoeffer and Niemöller, who, of whom you have heard. Okay, those are our shining lights. Okay, be blessed, consider well, ask for definitions. Think logically. Be blessed. <laughs>